0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradigan. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Senate Armed Services Committee wants to spend $25 billion more on defense as leading analysts maintain that the U.S. military is poised to shrink too far to be as effective as necessary Uh, in the face of global uh, crises, as well as uh, rising great power competition. Meanwhile, deliberations on infrastructure, the investigation into the January 6th insurrection continue as China is put on notice for its malicious cyber activities and top U.S. and European officials ponder what's next now that Russia's Vladimir Putin has made his case for taking over the rest of Ukraine, whether Ukrainians like it or not. Today's program will be in two segments. We're talking about Washington first and later in the program, Dr. Patrick Cronin of the Hudson Institute and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim will join us to discuss the week in the world. But first, here to talk about another busy Washington week are Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners. Former Pentagon Comptroller Bob Hale, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and Becca Wasser, also of the Center for a New American Security. Everybody, thanks very much for uh, joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And Huntington Ingalls Industries is sponsoring our coverage of the Navy League's upcoming Sea Airspace Conference and trade show. And also check out our weekly CAVAS Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavas, and producer, Chris Cervello, who take a deep dive into naval issues every week. This week, focusing, among other things, on uh, the Royal Navy and its tremendous deployment uh, with the Queen Elizabeth Task Force, obviously the flagship of the Royal Navy, and one of the world's largest uh, warships. Michael, another busy week. Um, Sask is calling for more money. Uh, infrastructure is, in, is an issue. The debt ceiling is looming. Uh, drafting women is an issue, Uh, you've got infrastructure and then, of course, mayhem surrounding uh, the mayhem that happened, uh, or rather mayhem surrounding the investigation to get to the bottom of the mayhem on January, on the January 6th insurrection, start us off uh, in any way you want. Uh, And maybe uh, the SASC and HASC markups might be a good way to start and whether or not the House uh, and uh, your good friend Adam Smith is going to agree that defense needs another $25 billion.
1: <laughs> okay, so uh, I think it is a good place to start. So uh, as you alluded to, the Senate Armed Services Committee approved their version of the National Defense Authorization Act uh, on Wednesday. Uh, now, their process is a closed process, so we only know what they choose to tell us. And one of the things they have let us know is that they did increase defense spending by 25 billion. But it's significant for a lot of reasons. One, it gives us the three percent above inflation that people have been looking for, but two, it passed by. An overwhelming bipartisan majority, which I think is also a clear indicator that the appropriators in the Senate will also follow suit. And then uh, the question will be, what will the House do? So the House, you know, plans to mark up to the president's number. The appropriators are already marked up to the president's number, seven fifteen. Um, I, I think that it, you know there are some Republicans that believe the House will mark up to that number. I don't believe they will, but it's very possible that an amendment is offered in full committee that will raise the um, uh, defense spending by $25 billion, and if, if so, that amendment would pass. And even if not, I still believe that that's the number we're going to end up uh, in in conference, because you alluded to the debt ceiling, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but I do believe that the $25 billion is the number that, that's going to stick. Another thing that's significant about the markup, which you mentioned too, is that there was an amendment offered by Senator uh, Jack Reed, who's the chairman of the committee, uh, to make w- women eligible for the military draft. Uh, this will expand registration for the services to all Americans. Uh, And that's something that I think could end up being very contentious and will just add more fuel to the fire of the culture wars out there and something that could imperil the bill if it is in in the final version. Um, Now, Now, why
0: why on earth would that be the case, right? I mean, if we're looking at a world that is um, more equal across the board, Women can, uh, all combat jobs have been open to women at this point, so they're allowed to die for their country like everybody else is. Why not open the selective service to them and have them at age, 18, you know, women at age 18, and Becca, if you wanna chime in on this, register for the selective service so that God forbid, when the bubble goes up, your you know, your, your information is in the system, right? I mean, you, when you and I, Michael and Bob and Byron, when we turned 18, we had to go down to the post office and register for the selective service.
1: Yes, uh, well, first, I think there's a lot of arguments on both sides, right? Yes, uh, <clears throat> combat o- opportunities have been open to all women since 2015, I believe, right? But we started having that debate back then. And I, if I recall correctly, it was Congressman Duncan Hunter that offered this amendment uh, back then to the NDAA, really is more of a, a gimmick to say, okay, you know, you wanna open up uh, all combat to women, then all women should urge for the draft, expecting a backlash. Nobody really wanted that to happen, so that's when they formed this uh, congressionally mandated commission to review the draft. And the commission came out with a recommendation that women should register, which I think is why um, Jack Reed uh, came forward with that amendment. But I think uh, you know the conservatives in this country uh, are just going to raise holy hell over this. And again, look, you know, I think it's going to be an argument that we're not Israel. Israel needs to do that because they have a limited population. We have a population of you know well over three hundred million people in this country. Do we? There's an argument. Now, whether we need the select service at all, let alone, do we need uh, women to register for the draft? So I, I think this is going to be a very contentious issue. And let's you know, let's move on. Really, to, yeah, go ahead, Becca.
2: If I can just quickly two finger that and I guess sort of wave the flag as the only woman uh, on this podcast, you know, I think uh, Michael's point about, you know, Uh, trying to put this in a broader context, right, it's been about 50 years since uh, America's actually had to uh, use, like had a draft, you know, at this point in time, we have sufficient end strength. And I would argue that even if we make some cuts to end strength, we're still potentially going to be far away from perhaps requiring a draft, even for some of the future conflicts that DoD you know seems to think that we might end up facing so to a certain extent there's sort of an open question as to why are we doing this now why are we raising this debate um, and does it actually matter or is this something uh, that perhaps maybe is tied to you know broader um issues at play um, you know i think that's kind of worth putting it into the broader perspective
0: michael uh t- take it away because we know we've got we've got infrastructure uh looming Right. Uh, all sorts of conflicting uh, uh, votes, Warner, Romney continuing to negotiate something, even if it doesn't look like it's going, you know, where where, where are we on 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 all of that? And, and what does it all mean? And of course, an update on the debt ceiling as well, which which is becoming a factor.
1: OK, so uh, let's talk about the debt ceiling, because that dovetails with our earlier discussion on how much money we're going to be spending on defense. In just eight days, uh, the United States is going to run out of borrowing authority. And as you know, if the debt limit isn't raised, the U.S. government will default on its loans. As of now, there are not the votes in the Senate uh, to pass an increase in the debt ceiling. So the option the Democrats have is to put it on their $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. However, that package probably wouldn't pass within the next eight days if it passes at all. Now, fortunately, the CBO came out yesterday and said that they can use uh, different gimmicks to keep that um, that date from uh, hitting us until October or November. So that gives us time. And what a lot of people are talking about on the Hill is that this will be part of some kind of budget deal uh, between the House and the Senate on agreeing to these higher limits for defense spending and agreeing to raise the debt ceiling and the other thing that the Republicans are going to insist on is that the Hyde Amendment also be kept uh, in place as well. So that's going to be interesting. But it pushes this all in, into the fall. And remind
0: um, everybody what the Hyde Amendment is for the handful of people who do not know what
1: that is. Sure. So the Hyde Amendment prohibits federal funds from being used to pay for abortions, except for the, in, in cases of the life of the mother. So it's a big, again, uh, big uh, cause of the conservatives and more fuel for the flames of the, uh, of the, of the culture wars. Uh, so then you referenced, um, uh, the January 6th committee and, and infrastructure. So a lot of action on the January 6th committee this week on Monday, Kevin McCarthy did appoint five Republicans, uh, to the committee, uh, within two days, uh, Nancy Pelosi was rejecting, uh, and using her veto power, uh, to two of those members, one of which is Jim Banks who, as you know, is on the Armed Services Committee and is a ranking member of a subcommittee. And the other is uh, Jim Jordan. And her rationale was really Jim Jordan is someone who could be called potentially as a witness before the committee because he may have had conversations with Trump on the 6th. And Jim Banks had made a lot of public statements calling this, comi- uh, this committee a sham. So he was not really an impartial uh, person to be put on, on the committee. And what's interesting and he's is- he's also Liz- the Republican study group chair. Exactly, exactly. And what's interesting is Liz Cheney uh, came out publicly supporting Pelosi's decision to kick her two colleagues uh, off, off this committee. Uh, and then McCarthy won up to her and said, okay, then I'm pulling all my people uh, from this committee. So in the end, you know it looks like Pelosi and McCarthy are getting exactly what they want. McCarthy now can say this whole thing is a partisan exercise and is not about really finding out the truth. And you know, Pelosi then can do whatever she wants. She can subpoena whoever she wants, whenever she wants without any protest. Uh, She can do closed door depositions without worrying about leaks. Uh, Her public hearings will be free from GOP complaints and protests. And the circus will continue, but it will really continue more outside the workings of of the panel rather than on the inside. And lastly, on infrastructure, you know, there was a procedural vote on infrastructure earlier this week that that failed in the Senate. But I really wouldn't read uh, anything into that. The the reason it failed is the Republicans aren't going to vote to proceed until they see the final package. They want to see the bill and they want to see. Uh, what the CBO score is and the pay-fors. Uh, but every statement I see from the Republican leadership is very optimistic on this. And from what I understand, there are four remaining issues that need to be resolved. They believe they can resolve them over the weekend and have a bipartisan infrastructure package uh, ready by Monday. Even if this does pass before the August recess, before the Senate adjourns, it will languish in the House uh, until... Uh, the Senate is able to figure out what they're doing on the on the uh, $3.5 trillion infrastructure package, if even if they could pass it at all. So these are far from a done deal. But this is a major step forward.
0: Um, uh, thanks for uh, that uh, comprehensive read. And if I understand correctly, you're going to join us for one more show uh, before uh, you go on vacation, but that'll coincide when Congress uh, is is off as well. So um, hopefully uh, they do something. And, and when you join us next week, uh, Michael, uh, you can talk about it. Bob, you've uh, looked at the marks. Um, you know, you've been thinking and and you know about the week as well from your standpoint. What are some of the key takeaways? What's on your mind?
3: Well, Vago, I think that, that, frankly the twenty-five billion dollars surprised me. I thought it was a little larger than uh, they would end up, and i um, I think it's possible it comes down some, but uh, but it it seems pretty clear given that highly bipartisan vote in this ask that they're going to add some uh, money to defense. Almost all of the ads probably are in procurement. We don't have detailed uh, data yet from the SAS, but they essentially funded all the services, so-called unfunded priority lists. And most of those were procurement. They did add a billion dollars to science and technology and half a billion dollars to DARPA. uh, But we don't know what they cut yet, uh, if they did uh, cut anything. So um, on the social issues, we've certainly mentioned uh, Women in the draft. Uh, there's another big one in this bill, in that it um, it took out of the chain of command not only uh, sexual assault cases, and uh, will set up a special prosecutor office to handle them in DoD, but also some other uh, uh, other uh, offenses as well. Came out. This has been a long time goal of Senator Gillibrand and others on the committee, uh, but it will. And I suspect the sexual assault part won't be too contentious because DOD and Austin have agreed to it. Uh, the others probably will be. Um, they also banned uh, any closure of Gitmo. So in, in my experience, it's, it's usually the social issues that delay everything uh, with the authorization bills. And it probably will be no exception this year That said and especially since there's a very remote problem issue or chance that we'd ever use the draft, I suspect they can get around these and that we will again see an authorization bill though it's probably going to be December. Just back briefly to the debt ceiling as Michael mentioned we're going to run out of borrowing power we still have tax authority, so we can pay some of our bills and And they can use these extraordinary measures that they've uh, borrowing from the Civil Service Trust Fund that will probably push this all off into October uh, when they will really hit the debt ceiling in a hard manner. I would remind everybody that this is what got us that the uh, the, uh, 2011 uh, Budget Control Act It was exactly the same circumstance. And so a budget deal can have repercussions. I don't think they're going to repeat that again. But I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, however, it probably will definitely complicate the debate you know, without question. I've been saying that for some time. This is a ticking time bomb and one that's going to force them into action in October or November. But overall, it's so definitely a, a step in the right direction for defense to, to fi- finally get the authorization bill out of committee and headed to the floor. The uh, House will mark up, I'm told, in September. And so the process is, is moving along. Uh, in, a, in a reasonable manner, and uh, I'm pleased for
0: that. So uh, I'll go back over to you. Uh, two questions of you, Bob, and uh, then want to go to Becca and, and Byron in a moment. But is the White House going to go along with this, ultimately, the increase in, in money? I mean, is this going to be something where the administration just looks at it and says, well, guys, thanks very, very much for the solid, because there is a little bit of concern that absent the budget pressure, the department is not going to change as fast in making some of these transitions otherwise, right? I mean, effectively, everybody gets to buy what they want, even if it's the wrong stuff that makes them feel good, even though it may not be as, you know, have that sort of military utility. There is a question about that on F-18s, for example, uh, for for the Navy, um, you know, and and there are other programs you could go across each of the military services and asking these, some of these questions. Do you think the administration goes along with it um, and, you um, does it forestall driving change because you were in the department and while the budget constraints were not welcome it did drive this sense that we have to out innovate our way through those problems as opposed to buying our way through these problems.
3: Margo, I just can't imagine if congress agrees on 740 billion that uh, Biden would veto this bill uh, over that uh, because presumably he will Try to use that as leverage the extra money for defense to get other things he wants, particularly some of the non-defense ads. Um, so, I, I, yes, I think they would ultimately accept it, if, it if, if Congress presents it to the president as part of a broader deal. Um, and, you know, will it, will it end pressure for change? No, I don't think so. I mean, yes, they're buying a few more things that people would question, uh, but they are buying things that the services have said they need. Uh, that is their unfunded priority list. So I, I don't think it is ridiculous. So on the way, we raise the management issues. I'm going to raise this later. But uh, there are several things in this bill that will try to force management changes in the Department of Defense. One, a requirement that DOD put forth a, a comprehensive approach using private sector best practices to improve management in the Pentagon. We'll see what comes out of that. And they also created a commission to look at the Planning, Programming, Budgeting and Execution System, PPVE. is a long time uh, goal of, uh, of our, our, our Chairman Jack Reed. And uh, although I don't think there's a lot of enthusiasm for it in the appropriators especially, and maybe not on the House Armed Services either. Usually, Congress goes along with commissions, so I suspect uh, we will see a PPBE commission. So there are some management changes in here or, or attempts to force management changes. But I don't think he's going to veto the bill over the $25 billion.
0: Uh, Becca, uh, you've been very uh, patient. Uh, your colleague, Dr. Stacey uh, Pettyjohn, testified last week before the HASC. Uh, she was among a number of analysts who uh, were, were up there. And uh, you both, along with Jenny uh, Matuschak from uh, CNAS, uh, authored the report that you guys uh, released: risky business, future strategy, and force options for the Defense Department. This, of course, as uh, the national, uh, uh, the Biden administration is looking at a new national security as a, as, an, as well as a new national defense strategy. Uh, you guys rolled that report out last week. What are your your takeaways on the on the budget and what we're seeing uh, this week that that goes beyond you know whether or not women are drafted or not,
2: obviously. <laughs> So as Stacey talked about in her testimony, you know, we ended up doing a set of research where we essentially extrapolated uh, you know, three different future strategy and force options uh, for the Biden administration that uh, fell under the 715 uh, top line. So, we created three different forces and we tested them using wargaming to see if they could actually fulfill some of the top missions of what, uh, you know, DOD and the US military is expected to. We also did uh, a little bit of budget analysis, looking at the FY22 budget and trying to sort of read the tea leaves to see where we thought that the Biden administration was going. And the strategy. That we think that the Biden administration is most likely going in is one that tries to do it all, rather than just focusing on China and Russia. Uh, you know, instead focusing on a broader array of potential threats, um, trying to kind of hedge against you know unforeseen events happening around the globe, while also contending with things like bio threats and climate change, and the force that we developed that's in line with that and within the budget constraints, actually ended up failing at the top two missions that we need the US military for. The force was unable to uh, you know, meet either uh, China or Russia in great power conflict. Um, and it was also unable to roll back small land grabs that China and Russia might seek to take in places like the Baltics or the East and South China Seas. So that's pretty concerning um, because this is something that, frankly, only the US military can do. Other elements of power within the US government, uh, diplomacy isn't going to help us here. So there needs to be this better linkage among strategy for structure and resources, which brings us to, you know, recently what we've gotten from the SASC, this big bump up. And so I think here my kind of takeaways are spending more. It's not the same as spending smartly, Um, and I'm concerned that you know even with this bump up, if this is indeed the uh, the direction that the Biden administration is going in, trying to kind of do everything, um, it's still not nearly enough to get us there. Um, And then on top of that, you kind of have this complication of what. Congress tends to do when we get to these markups, which is, you know, Congress is really loath to follow through on some of the divestments that DOD and the services have been pushing for. And obviously this really comes down to a lot of, uh, you know, domestic political and economic reasons, Um, but it does kind of keep us from building a force that's a little bit more uh, strategic and perhaps with an eye to the future. Um, And it definitely ends up curbing modernization efforts. So when you have that, plus Congress also trying to fulfill all of these unfunded requirements lists, which frankly tend to be wish lists, you know, they're nice to haves rather than must haves. um, And particularly so when they're coming from the combatant commands, we end up having a lot more resources, but often for the things that we don't truly need. Sometimes it's the wrong capabilities. And ultimately, all of these dynamics together are really going to be sort of keeping us from making some of the hard choices that we need to make to perhaps create a more um, effective Uh, force for the challenges that we are going to be facing today and tomorrow, Uh, and so we really need to start talking uh, quite seriously about the capabilities in which we need to divest from, as well as, you know, whether cuts to end strength, uh, you know, might actually be an option here, even though that's something that's been incredibly unpalatable for folks to talk about. Um, And if we don't end up doing that, we're really going to just continue to have this perpetual mismatch between strategy and capabilities. Uh, But when you have a force that can't fulfill some of the most basic missions, that's super troublesome.
0: I couldn't agree with you more in terms of uh, the necessity to make some of these choices, to make divestitures, right? I mean, effectively, Congress always adds money to it because it doesn't want to make any decision, right? So if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. And ultimately we're in control of what we spend money on. We spend a lot of money We've just decided that there are different priorities we want to achieve in this uh, as, as opposed to uh, necessarily getting more capability. We continue to increase military compensation, uh, even though military compensation is getting increasingly problematic. It's become a who loves troops more, whereas if you actually took a survey to troops, they would rather get paid less money and there would be more troops uh, as, as a as a general rule let me bring byron you've been very very patient in this uh in this discussion you know you've been writing very thoughtfully about a whole range of issues and i want to also kind of tease you out a little bit on some of these uh, industrial stories we've seen uh alyssa slotkin uh as well as mike Gallagher finally reported out uh, the uh, supply chain uh, report that was rolled out at cnas with richard Fontaine of cnas being uh, the thoughtful moderator he is. Uh, for these uh, events, Byron, take 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 us away on whatever it is that was on your uh, radar screen this week.
4: Let me just kind of walk through. You know, we've already talked a bit and add my perspective. I think one of the interesting things with the SaaS markup is the market reaction. If you look at how defense stocks have traded, has been kind of meh. Um, I think you know, obviously this is part of a process. I kind of agree with Bob, 25 billion was, was a little bit more than I had been expecting, but I kind of see you've now seen the, the floor and the ceiling set uh, for the FY22 budget, but you know, the points we've discussed uh, during this broadcast, the authorizers are gonna move at one pace, but the appropriators may move at another and it, it, this all may not get wrapped up until we're well into 2022. So it's going to be interesting, you know, this came out on the eve of earnings season, how defense managements, I'm sure they're going to spin this as a positive, but they're going to get a lot of questions about, you know, when is this going to stick, uh, you know, and when would we finally get a budget? Um, I would also agree, you know, with, with Becca's comments, I mean, it's kind of a dog's breakfast if you look at the program changes that have been made. And um, I don't really know if it, if it gets us any closer to some of the points that were raised, certainly during the testimony on the budget so far before Congress. I mean, this, this whole question about what do we have the so-called Davidson window we have to worry about in Taiwan. I mean, great. You added DDG-51, uh, which has industrial base implications, but that ship probably won't be delivered until 2028. Um, you know, if, if it's a near-term problem that The committee is worried about, um, I think, because Becca's colleague testified, you you need to step up things like munitions. And kind of related to that, you know, the 40 page summary really didn't tease any of that out. Uh, It it does look like a slightly different bump up than the FY18 uh, budget when, uh, you know, there was a significant increase above the president's request by both SASC and HASC. Um, but you know this one looks like it's going to be peanut buttered a little bit more broadly over all the different appropriations categories i think there's another 2.8 billion for military construction when you start adding back things like a10s um, older aircraft that's going to have operations and maintenance account uh, implications so i don't think this is going to be as pointed at procurement and rdt or really procurement as that fy 18 bump up was and then you know just to kind of pick up on the uh, the Hass Task Force. I think it's a very good, succinct report on supply chain issues. You know, some of these have been discussed before by by the two co-chairs of of the report, um, Representative Slotkins and, and Gallagher. I think, you know, the thing that I thought was interesting was uh, we're back to labor issues and skills shortages, you know, kind of as, as the economy comes back uh, maybe a bit wobbly with uh, with the pandemic. Um, these critical skill shortages, I think, are going to manifest themselves a lot more. And um, I know the Secretary of Commerce was at the White House yesterday talking about the broader infrastructure package and some of these training programs. That you know, as we start making this transition to potentially higher-paid jobs, you're going to need to train people to do this stuff. And um, that, that, I think, kind of loops back into a critical supply chain. And frankly, there was another event that was held on uh, defense industrial mobilization. I think that's that's a critical element of that discussion as well.
0: And Mark Kansian of CSIS, as well as Jim Hassick. Uh, who participated in uh, Steve uh, Grunman's uh, event along with uh, uh, Brennan Grinnan uh, uh, last, uh, last week. Let me ask one uh, quick Buy American uh, question before we part uh, for the week, because we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive on it, but want to get a flavor from you on this. The administration has been talking about Buy American uh, it's important for federal dollars to go to American contractors. That's raised concerns by a lot of our overseas allies and partners. On the other hand, the administration has been saying, no, 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 no. We want you guys aboard in order to get the best capability, you know, c- collectively develop technology to counter the Chinese and the Russians. And at the same time, uh, story broke uh, this week uh, that suggested uh, that uh, National Reconnaissance Office and Ballistic Missile Defense is telling senators, hey, we're going to start pairing foreign content off of some of these weapons systems, saying that, well, it's lawmakers who who passed this. How is this going to play out? How serious are these concerns? How worried are you, any of you, that we're talking with forked tongue on this issue? On the one hand, we're talking about Buy American. Once you start talking that way, it becomes the last refuge of the scoundrel you can categorize anything if you wanted to as being nationally critical, including buggy whips that may not be necessarily that important. At the same time, it disrupts sources of supply on things you really, really need. Byron, where do you think the temperature of this is going? And, and maybe Mike will bring you in on this, where lawmakers are thinking about this, because I can't see a single lawmaker who's not going try to try to sort of force advantage on this, even if what they're selling is you know, a sharpened stick as opposed to the titanium rod we need. Go ahead. Uh,
4: It's not, you know, kind of Pacific Northwest temperatures, uh, at least what they've recently experienced on this. It's look, it's still, it's still going to be a a pretty important issue. Um, You know, the, the task force report talked about the need to kind of um, involve allies in our, in our supply chain issues. And I forget the exact term, is it nearshoring or friendshoring or, or instead of offshoring? Um, and, you know, from a simple economic standpoint, you're, you, why would you duplicate something that an ally has already done don't you want a more diverse uh, geographic um, supply chain that uh, limits the, the damage that may be done by what other cause to to a particular critical facility? So um, I, I agree. I, I don't think we clearly don't have any resolution on this. It's, it's going to be part and parcel of the discussions this year and into the future.
1: Michael? I'm talking broad terms because these are things that I am, am working on for several clients, but I, I would say that Uh, You know, look, there's been a push, uh, and obviously, as Byron correctly mentioned, even in in this report, to, you know, leverage ally and partner capabilities, right, to partner with them. Uh, But the feeling on the Hill will be that should not come at the expense of U.S. opportunities, right? So, uh, and then, you know, to have sources apply for different things, I think, again, I've seen this argument on the Hill before. That's great among partner nations, because in many cases, we don't have the ability to do it here, or it'll take us too long to ramp up here. But uh, there will be some concern about the security of that supply chain, You know, sh- flying things from overseas, shipping things from overseas, when we can do it right here uh, as well. So that's a debate that's um, going to be going on for quite some time. And I think it depends on what the issue is. And, and there will be, again, I think, resistance among a lot of the defense companies that are buying products uh, from China, uh, pieces and parts that are in things that they sell uh, to the DOD that um, are either very inexpensive or their supply chain, they, they'll say, is, is uh, so convoluted in such a way they don't know whether these things are coming from China or not. So this is going to be a long uh, slog.
0: Uh, Bob and Becca, I want to give you guys a bite at this as well. Bob, you were in an administration where uh, there was a perception by some overseas after some prominent weapons systems were uh, curtailed or canceled, whether it was an Italian uh, presidential helicopter or an Italian transport, that somehow the administration was uh, more by American, uh, right? The reversal of the decision to buy A330 Airbus tankers and buy uh, Boeing KC-46s instead. What What's the, you know, are you concerned with the tone? Are we headed in a potentially negative direction from your standpoint? And Becca, since, uh, you know, it was your boss moderating the discussion, I feel like I should give you the last word on this. Go ahead, Bob.
3: As you know well, uh, Buy America is deeply in the soul of the U.S. Congress because of jobs, uh, and it'll always be there. You know, that said, I thought this report raised some significant issues of concern about how dependent we are uh, on some countries that aren't our best buddies, uh, and, and, and so that there's got to be a compromise here. Uh, I don't want to see us Go overboard on Buy America, but we probably do need to meet some of these concerns working with our allies. So somehow a balance needs to be struck. And, and I hope DOD can take the lead in doing that because Congress will probably not tend to strike that balance, but rather veer off toward Buy America. Back to you, Vago. Becca?
2: Yeah, so for me, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out in terms of trying to, uh, you know, decouple the United States uh, from China further, but also in terms of finding ways to perhaps incentivize partners and allies around the globe uh, to also take a few steps back. And I think based on some of China's predatory economic practices, that's going to be incredibly difficult. And, you know, the uh, the task force report, uh, which is pretty pretty strong, uh, you know, it doesn't really go down to a deeper level of talking exactly about what those incentives might be, in part because they're probably going to be on a case-by-case basis. So um, I'm really interested to see how some of this supply chain work is actually going to tie into some of the ongoing legislation and push that's been going on vis-a-vis semiconductors, because uh, I think that there's actually a really good lashing up between the two, and that's a place that I'm interested in looking at and seeing how that that. that
0: plays out further. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate a great discussion. Looking forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And in the meantime, have a great weekend and a great week. And joining us now for a survey of what's going on around the world are Dr. Dov Zakheim, former Pentagon Comptroller, who, among his many affiliations, is affiliated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Dr. Patrick Cronin, who leads the uh, Asia-Pacific Program at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Gentlemen, uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Dov, you're literally a man uh, on the move. You're on the road, uh, and a a good sign now that uh, obviously... Uh, We're getting into a post-COVID world. Last week, uh, you were in Morocco. First, start us off on the 25 billion extra dollars. Roger Sakheim, your very thoughtful son, who's uh, the director of the Reagan Institute and the foundation, discussed the necessity for more money. And it looks like the Senate Armed Services Committee certainly is agreeing. Uh, From your standpoint, is the additional money welcome? Or as we heard from Becca Wasser, does it potentially forestall the kind of tough choices we need to make for the future?
5: Uh, I come in somewhere in the middle of this. Uh, on the one hand, I think there was a lot of merit to the unfunded priority list. That it was ridiculous that the administration could be asking for trillions more on the uh, non-defense side and yet having belly aches over uh, a relatively small increase on the defense side. Uh, and so uh, much of what was asked for, I think, was quite legitimate. On the other hand, there is a problem. Uh, it does create a, a sense of complacency uh, that, uh, gee, you know, we ask for more money, we get more money, we buy the same stuff we've always been buying. Uh, that's not the way to, to beat the Chinese. We've got to be uh, on the cutting edge and very little of what they asked for, if anything, uh, was cutting edge. So it's kind of a mixed blessing as I see it.
0: Um, Patrick, uh, did you see in this additional money anything then from a Pacific defense uh, or deterrence initiative standpoint or from a Pacific theater or a competition with China standpoint advances the ball we need to in the way that we need to inva- advance it?
6: Well, there are limits to hard power, but there are also limits to soft power, naming and shaming, and symbolic actions. We have to invest in presence and the ability to build the defense capacity of our partners and allies in the region. So adding additional money to do that
0: is a step in the right direction. Let me uh, ask you about China. I mean, obviously it was a very big week. The administration, uh, and Dove. I wanna get your sense on this in a moment as well, but Patrick can lead us off as the the regional expert. Um, We had the administration assemble NATO, EU allies and partners in Europe and the Pacific uh, to come together to say, hey, we're gonna all work together to expose uh, China's malicious cyber activities. Uh, At the same time, we saw uh, a very bitter exchange of words between Beijing, uh, right? Uh, Beijing put out a tweet uh, of a mushroom cloud uh, because Japan said, look, we're we're going to support Taiwan. Uh, As a result, uh, you know, China's answer to that was you've been nuked once and we can nuke you again. I think that's a highly problematic statement to make to a nation. That was on the receiving end of an atom bomb, but to refresh everybody's memory in the 1970s, developed an atom bomb, dismantled it and put it back in the basement, right? What, talk to us a little bit about the rhetoric, uh, what the administration is doing, uh, and where, where you think we're all falling on this.
6: Yeah, China has been brazen about the war words, and uh, this is the most irresponsible of uh, sort of statements uh, or tweets in this case uh, that have been made perhaps uh, in in all of these wolf warrior diplomacy years. Um, I I think they, you know, the Japanese have created the capabilities for a nuclear ICBM if they need to put it together. Um, When the United States walked them back in the 1970s from that program, they settled on having a latent capability that could be reconstituted in a, a period of uh, a year or less. Um, over the years, they've upgraded that uh, sort of timetable so that they could build a bomb within months. Uh, and, and clearly, Japan has all of the attributes uh, and the sinews of power for uh, a nuclear ICBM. So China's playing with fire here. Um, They know they're playing with fire, but they don't care because they're in a pugilistic, nationalistic, assertive mode under Xi Jinping right now, especially during this CCP centenary year. Uh, And as they try to psych out the region, that uh, unification is coming. Xi Jinping just visited Tibet, by the way. So, you know, as we think about the East China Sea and the South China Sea, um, the Himalayan border remains a very hot place. Uh, The Dalai Lama just turned 86. Uh, if he were to die, he's in exile, um, you know, th- this could lead to yet new uh, conflict uh, on the Indian-Chinese border o- over Tibet. So everywhere where Xi is trying to consolidate Chinese power on, under his sort of reign, um, he is trying to push back Japan, trying to weaken U.S. alliances uh, and to try to overcome the defenses of the democracies. Uh, and, you know, this threat to Japan is just shows how far Beijing's willing to go to try to advance those goals.
0: And, and uh, right, the Olympics are also playing off because the next Olympics are going to be, uh, next Winter Olympics are going to be in uh, China, uh, and the Summer Olympics in uh, Japan have been problematic. Naomi Osaka lighting uh, the Olympic cauldron. So, um, you know, at least these Olympic games a year delayed uh, are now under underway. Um, Let me ask you one other question about the uh, administration organizing everybody on the cyber front against China, right? I mean, a lot of the cyber focus is uh, obviously on Chinese espionage. The Russians uh, certainly have taken, uh, gotten some attention, obviously, because of ransomware and all that. How is this going to play in assembling all nations uh, against uh, China? A, what do you think of the move? B, how's Beijing going to respond to this? Because it responds negatively to just about anything that's like this.
6: I think China's acutely sensitive though, uh, Vago, to the formation of potentially anti-China coalitions. So that's what the threat is here. Uh, it may be just words, uh, but the world knows that the Ministry of State Security is using this elite network of satellite contractors for cyber malfeasance and to steal intellectual property for the economic benefit of China's national champions. Um, and the message is, is again, clear, your malign behavior unites the world against China China doesn't like that. That doesn't mean they'll go along with what we want, uh, but they clearly will respond. I think one of the differences between China and Russia, including on cyber, is that, again, China is more sensitive to international ganging up on China. And in fact, they use those words. They say, you're ganging up on us. Well, yeah, we're ganging up on malign behavior and we'll continue to do so in the future.
0: Well, and it's in part because also Russia, right, is, is natural resource rich. So within its own borders can create its own ecosystem and it's less dependent on everybody else. Whereas in China's case, it's much more dependent on, on everybody else. Dov, let me bring you into the discussion. Your, your sense on all of this and, and the highly problematic uh, approach, right? I mean, the Chinese deleted that tweet, but tweet, but at the end of the day, you can't unsee that and not understand what the impact of this uh, is. What's your sense uh, and how badly is 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 Beijing playing with fire here?
5: I totally agree with Patrick. Uh, I'd like to just uh, add to a couple of things he said. First, um, I suspect that part of the reason the Japanese made the statement that they made was to ensure that the Biden administration hangs as tough on Taiwan as uh, has been the case in the last few years. Um, is hedging, everybody around the world is hedging against the United States. Uh, they just don't know, uh, what will happen after Biden and they don't even know what will happen with Biden, um, by making that statement and, and provoking the Chinese, uh, it essentially gets us into a certain kind of box, uh, and, uh, pretty much ensures that we're not going to back away. And as you know, there's been some talk in Washington of maybe we've overdone it, maybe we're doing too much with Taiwan, maybe we should go back to the way we were. Um, I think the Japanese have made it harder to make that argument. Uh, and of course, the Chinese responded as everybody expected they would respond, and as Patrick described so well.
0: Uh, Patrick, um, do you where do you think the administration is going on Taiwan? Dove makes an excellent point that you know, we each administration has sort of gone back and forth on this. We've concluded that we're going to help uh, the Taiwanese better defend themselves, so at least the arms sales are back on track. Obviously, the Bush administration was concerned that the uh, the uh, government would declare independence and that that was going to cause a, a whole different set of problems. Where do we where do we need to fall? Because there is an increasing number, there are increasing numbers of folks in DC who make the case that actually there should be something more explicit that will serve. As a definitive deterrent uh, to Chinese adventurism, even though I'm one of the people who believes that if Taiwan, if, Ch- if China wants to take Taiwan, it's not going to do it through force, it's going to do it through other means, which dovetails us to the next question I want to get Dove's sense on. But where do you think the administration's head is on Taiwan?
6: Well, the, the grand strategy, if there is one, uh, is to rally the democracies, uh, especially coming out of COVID, invest in the American economy and try to compete with an assertive China and on Taiwan, not to do away with the ambiguity that so far has uh, has been to our advantage. So what the Biden administration is trying to do is to clarify other aspects of US policy. They've done that over the attribution, the naming and shaming specifically of the Chinese on the cyber attacks. And they're also going to do it next Monday in Singapore when Secretary of Defense, Austin, uh, lays out perhaps the, the clearest statement uh, ever of US policy commitment to freedom of navigation and where we stand on five years after the uh, permanent court of arbitration tribunal ruled in the Philippines favor and mostly against China over the South China Sea. So they're trying to remove ambiguity in places where they feel it's safer to do so, uh, but they're being pressed at all fronts to basically take on the Chinese more directly. And they are holding tough on Taiwan as Dove suggested, but there are still questions about whether that will continue to be the case after, say, Deputy Secretary Wendy Sherman's talks uh, in China uh, today.
0: Uh, Dove, we've got a couple of minutes left, and I want to get your uh, sense on uh, Russia. Uh-huh. Vladimir Putin obviously putting out a very long essay about what he thinks, right, that Ukraine should be part uh, of Russia. It's a historic part of it. There's a sense he's not going to invade but try to take Ukraine through other means. How, how should uh, leaders, and I know that you've been part of some of these discussions, how do leaders need to think about what's happening to better prepare
5: for what could be next? Well, let me begin, if I may, first with something about uh, what uh, Patrick was discussing in terms of uniting everybody on the cyber issue vis-a-vis China. I think the food for the pudding is gonna be in the eating. Just what exactly are we gonna do about it? Because that hasn't been discussed yet. And Vladimir Putin watches this. We, we have this terrible mistake that we think that, you know, one bad guy deals with us And the other bad guy is oblivious to those dealings. And it's just not true. So Putin's going to watch that as well. Look, his case is very simple. Uh, We don't want it. We've been invaded many times uh, for centuries. uh, And the most recently by uh, the Nazis, before that by Napoleon and on and on and on. And we just can't live that way. And so Ukraine has been part of our country forever. uh, At least, uh, indeed, uh, that's where the... uh, The czars basically started out and um, we're just restoring uh, what's historically ours. Uh, The fact that the Ukrainians may not like that uh, doesn't phase Putin any more than the Moldovans or anybody else. Uh, That's not his worry. That's, you know, he doesn't care about that. Uh, The real question is, would he invade? He doesn't need to. Uh, He's already broken off part of Ukraine with his little green men and was supporting all these guys in Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, and uh, my guess is he will continue to do that. Whether he uses cyber and how he uses cyber and against whom he uses cyber, that's why I think he's going to watch to see how we're dealing with the Chinese.
0: And uh, and, and we've, we've got less than 30 seconds, have, um How does the administration need to be responding to the Russians? Obviously, a wave of ransomware uh, attacks. It's unclear whether or not uh, the uh, Russian government has been involved in cracking down at all. How does Washington need to
5: respond now? Well, there are public responses and non-public responses. Um, you know, we've been sanctioning them like crazy. It obviously hasn't done very much to stop them. So I think what we're going to have to do are things that are not in the public eye. Maybe ultimately will get reported in the press, but we can really tie those guys in knots if we want to.
0: And before we go, uh, Dove, I know you've got a piece out in The Hill uh, on uh, Mike Brown and his uh, nomination and what that means. Patrick, talk to us very briefly about your report so people can check it out.
6: Yeah, Vago, Hudson Institute uh, has published my monograph on China's Gambit for Information Dominance. Uh, The party wants to control people, technology, economic future, and potentially thwart U.S. military forces. The information domain is critical to all of that, and it's explained in my report And I put forward an alliance response, heavily focused on US-Australia, but applicable to other allies as well.
0: We're going to have you back on again uh, very soon for you to go in-depth on that. Guys, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Have a great uh, weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot.